We are studying the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 3 in uh, our study. If you, you know, the outline that uh, Fred sent to you a couple of months, well, no, weeks, I guess is better. Uh, we're in part 2 of the book of Galatians. I think it's important to just uh, make one or two quick reminders. This is the first epistle Paul wrote, probably uh, A.D. 49, late A.D. 49. But nonetheless, he's being challenged by a group of people. We give them the name, it's not a biblical term, but give them the name Judaizers. That is the term expositors and history gives to them. These are people who want to add to faith works of the law circumcision, keeping the Sabbath, etc., to have a more complete justification, a more complete sanctification. I'm using terms Paul uses. In addition, they were challenging the apostolic authority of Paul, in effect saying he's not an apostle. He wasn't one of the original 12. Uh, this stuff he's teaching, this free grace stuff, is made up. It's man-made. It has no authority. And so the first two chapters, as you know, Paul establishes his apostolic authority. He uses eight specific events in his life that shows he received this message of the free grace gospel directly from Jesus. Now, part two, which is where we begun just very briefly last week, we're going to dig into it now in detail, is chapters three and four where Paul gets deep into theology. So I encourage you to put your thinking caps on. Don't put your mind on the shelf and just vegetate. You must think and you must follow the argument that Paul's presenting here. It is a theological argument. And the Bible is does not in any way uh, you know, pardon itself or excuse itself for dealing with deep theological issues. And that the Lord Jesus said, we're to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So to be a Christian is to be a thinking Christian, as well as a, a, a Christian who experiences God's grace, has the wonderful, uh, uh, wonderful opportunity to worship and the experiential part of our faith. But it's also thinking. It's about thinking deeply. This is what Paul's doing. So we started this last week. We'll get back into it here this week. In verses 1 through 5, Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. So he's transitioning from defending his apostolic authority to now defending his message. And so he just asks the Galatians some questions. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I'm in verse 1. And the word bewitched is, is a really strong word. Literally, if you do the literal study of the Greek term, is who cast an evil eye on you? It was a, uh, it was the kind of, um, the kind of term that coming out of a pagan culture. Because remember, the Galatians were Greco-Roman people; they would understand what he's saying. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So, I mean, what does he say? Why does he say it that way? Be, because it's something that is so so crucial, so crucial to the gospel. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was a public event. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was a well-known event. This wasn't something hidden. This isn't part of some mystery cult that only four people saw and only letting it out because they're being forth. This is a public gospel message. You know this. 
And so he then says, because that's true, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing with faith? It's a very important question. Because the Holy Spirit is the dynamic center of the gospel message. It's the dynamic center of the new covenant message. He is the dynamic center of the new life in Christ. He taught that they believed it, but he's asking. Now, if you're considering going back and incorporating the law into your belief system, tell me, um, did the Holy Spirit come as a result of the works of the law? Did you earn the Spirit? Did you merit the Spirit coming on Pentecost on May 24th, AD 33? Or by faith? Now, the answer to that question is a rather obvious answer. Because, I mean, even... Even the Judaizers would have a little bit of a struggle answering that question. Well, we earned it by the works of the law, and we did enough of the works of the law, and finally God sent the Holy Spirit. That's ludicrous. That's not what happened. Then second, he goes on in verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Let me ask you this question. What word, what doctrinal term would you use to describe that question? What's he talking about? Justification. No, sanctification. Okay. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you, are you being transformed by the flesh? By, and again, the flesh is a metaphor. It doesn't mean the skin and bones. It, it's that, that term that's used to describe our own efforts. The flesh is the enemy of the Christian because the flesh does what it wants to do. We need to be transformed. So he's saying, I want to put it as, as simple as I can. Is sanctification, is sanctification something the Spirit does or you're being perfected by the flesh? Do you earn it? Do you merit? Do you work for it? Well, again, the definition of sanctification, and Paul's the one who really deals with this, is the Father is transforming us into the image of his Son by the Holy Spirit. And so, I mean, just the way he's asking the question, it's so, it's so clear, it's so in your face. And then he asks, verse 4, a third question, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, this is a little more... Uh, personal for them, but it's focusing on their experience and their experience of suffering. Many of these Galatians, uh, i got to remember who they are now, they're Greco-Roman people who have converted to Christianity, and because they've converted to Christianity, they've got a lot of enemies now. And they are experiencing pushback, they're experiencing suffering, they're experiencing uh, being ostracized, they're experiencing, even in some cases, like in Lystra, physical persecution. Are you suffering because you're observing the law? Are you standing out and being ostracized because you're keeping the law? Is, is somebody throwing you in prison because you're practicing circumcision? You see, that's what he's saying. And the answer is, that's ridiculous. Of course not. And then his final question in verse 5, it's the fourth question. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you 
Do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And he's, what's he referring to there? What's Paul referring to there? Well, let's just, you have to go back to Acts 13 and a little bit into Acts 14 on the first missionary journey. Did Paul do messianic miracles in the Galatian cities he visited? Do you know what I mean by messianic miracle? Signs and wonders, healings. Did he do signs and wonders, messianic miracles in some of the towns of Galatia? Yes, he did. So he's asking, were those miracles done because you are observing circumcision, keeping the Sabbath, observing the the feast days of Judaism? Or because of the faith in Jesus Christ, the justification, because the words, let me really flip it, the works that are done in the name of Christ dovetails with the word that explains the work of Christ. Those two dovetail together. So these messianic miracles, are they done because you're keeping the law? Are they, are they done to, to show the dynamic power of the law to save? Or do they complement and validate the work, the words of the gospel, that you are saved by Jesus Christ and nothing else? And so each one of these four questions, which I, I think are fairly clear to you, each one of these four questions is a penetrating, convicting set of rhetorical questions. Because you can't answer any one of those four questions with the answer, well, this all happened because we were keeping the law. This all happened because the gospel is about keeping the law. I mean, that's just absolutely ridiculous. And so it's a shrewd, I really think it is, a shrewd move on Paul's part to set up this discussion of deep theological truth by a focus on their experience. Because most people are very attuned to their experience, the experiential aspect of their faith. And his, his, his intended answer to each one of these, well, they're because of the gospel, which is by putting faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. That's why we've been thrown into prison. Not because we were circumcising our boys. Not because we are observing the Sabbath. That's not why they throw us in prison. So he's gotten their attention. He's, he's validated his apostolic authority in the first two chapters. Now he's got their attention by focusing on the nature of the gospel, which is justification by faith. Are you with me? Got it? You see what he's doing? Yes. So here, here to me, and of course, you probably would all agree, but to me, this next paragraph, I just see the brilliance of Paul. Because he moves from the experiential and connecting it to the purity of the gospel to this question. How has God justified people in the past? How has God justified people in the Old Testament? How 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 do you answer that question? We would kind of say it this way, maybe. How were people in the Old Testament saved? I'll tell you, I mean, I've been in ministry a long time. You know, I came to the Lord in 1972, and a bunch of things happened. I went to seminary and came back. So I've been in, you know, since the early 80s. 
Do you know how many people have said to me, well, there really are two ways of salvation. In the Old Testament, you're saved by keeping the law. And in the New Testament, you're saved by putting your faith in Jesus. Is that correct? That's heresy. That's heretical. And so what Paul has to do, and it's absolutely brilliant, he brings to the witness stand Abraham. And he, in effect, is asking this question. How was Abraham justified? So look at the text. It's not very long. It isn't very long at all. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He has just quoted from Genesis 15.6, one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. Because in that verse, the words that Paul uses in describing justification in Romans and Galatians are the terms that are used in Genesis 15. Okay, so what did Abraham do? He believed God. He put his faith in God. He believed what God was saying. And the text says the consequence of that is he's counted as righteous. And that term uh, counted is translating a Hebrew term, which is a, um, a like a merchant's term. Let's put it in the 21st century. It's like an Excel spreadsheet term. Now I've got your attention because most of you have heard of an Excel spreadsheet. But what it is, is God count, he got added up all of the things on the spreadsheet and at the bottom said paid in full, declared righteous. Because Abraham put his faith in God. He believed what God was saying in the covenantal promises, which if you want to, we'll review those again. But in the covenant, he believed what God was saying. And God said, you're justified. I hereby declare you righteous. The Excel spreadsheet says at the bottom, declared righteous, paid in full, totally redeemed. Price has been paid. I mean, you can say it about four different ways. But he's been declared righteous. So if that's true, and he just quoted from Genesis 15, 6, when did Abraham live? Approximately 2100 BC. When was the law given? 1446 BC. So, what role did the law pay play in Abraham's justification? It played no role in Abraham's justification. So, isn't that brilliant? If you're going to bring somebody to the witness stand to prove your case that you're justified by faith plus nothing, I personally I'd have brought Moses to the witness stand because he's the great hero of the, you know the Old Testament. Everything revolves around Moses, the law, the deliverance of Exodus, the the, the writing of the first five books, all that stuff. He's the father. He's the beginning of the Jewish race. The covenant was given to him. So if I can show that Abraham was justified by faith, I've clinched my argument. And that's what he does. Brilliant. And if you go to Romans chapter 4, which is a much longer discussion about Abraham, in that chapter, chapter 4 of Romans, Genesis 15, 6 is quoted four times. Abraham believed and was justified. He was 
counted, reckoned as righteous. Know then, I'm continuing now in, in Galatians 3, verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are faith of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Notice that declaration. The man of faith. Now, do you see what Paul just did? He connected Abraham's justification to the Abrahamic covenant. Because the Abrahamic covenant, which is first detailed for us in chapter 12 of Genesis, is repeated over and over and over and over again, last time in Genesis 46, in that book and then throughout the Old Testament, the prophets and everybody. The Abrahamic covenant has three parts to it. Seed, land, and blessing. God says to Abraham, I will bless you. What do you mean? I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Second, I'm going to give you land. Chapter 12, verse 7. And then later on in chapter 17, he details the boundaries of the land he's going to give to Abraham's descendants. And then thirdly, he says in verse 3, Abraham, in you, all the nations will be blessed. That's what Paul just quoted. So what Paul is doing, he's connecting the justification by faith doctrine, which Abraham exemplifies, because that's how he was justified, by faith, to the Abrahamic covenant. Because he says, the scripture, and that's kind of interesting, by the way, too. He says the scripture, he doesn't say God, so it's saying scripture is God's word. Scripture declares this, that, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, when he said to Abraham, and you all the nations will be blessed. So Paul does something else here. When the Abrahamic covenant talks about this blessing in you all the nations will be blessed, it's the blessing of what? Of justification. So the blessing that Abraham's descendants and Abraham himself and his descendants are going to bring is the blessing of justification. Because this is what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She was a Samaritan woman. Dear, dear lady, you must understand that salvation comes through the Jews. And who is Jesus? He's a Jew. <laughs> in Matthew 1, 1, he's identified as the son of Abraham, as well as the son of David. Now, saying all this, all that you know, I just want to make, help, help you make these connections of what you already know. What Paul is doing here in these few verses is profound. He's connecting, <clears throat> he's connecting his message of justification with Abraham, the great patriarch of the Old Testament. How was Abraham saved? Answer, by faith. But he's also connecting it to the Abrahamic covenant. And he's saying that that blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant is the blessing of salvation. It's a blessing of justification. And to me, you know, I'm not as smart as Paul, but to me, I'd have stopped there. The case closed. But he is, he's just getting started. He has the rest of chapter 3 and all chapter 4 yet to go into the deep theological justification, 
is another word. The, the, the deep validation of the doctrine of justification, my friend. He's just getting started. He appeals to their experience. How did all this happen? Like, you go, oh, no, no, no. How was Abraham justified? By faith. And he connects it to the blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant. It's the blessing of salvation. That's a pretty formidable case he's building, isn't it? You with me? You understand what Paul has done in verse 6, 7, 8, 9. And he calls Abraham the man in its definite article, the man of faith. He is faith. I'm sorry, go ahead. We're tracking. We're following. Yeah, I thought you were asking a question. Yeah, right. Noah found favor with God, but he was not not he didn't have the same status as Abraham. Yeah, I think he does, Fred, because he do, it does say that Abraham, excuse me, that Noah believed God, and the the act of building the ark, etc., indicated that he believed God. So, how was Noah justified by faith? Too. But Abraham, if you can prove Abraham's justified by faith, which he, by quoting Genesis 15, 6, and connecting it to the covenant, that's, that's a pretty compelling case. And for the people, these Judaizers, these Judaizers, they've got to answer that question. Because Abraham is justified by faith 550 years before the law was given. So in that sense, you could argue the law was irrelevant to Abraham's salvation. The law played no part in Abraham. And that is absolutely central and absolutely correct. I'm sorry to say Moses. I'm being really confused, but I think a lot of people are confused. About the timeline in the Old Testament. Moses followed Abraham by 500 years. Almost 600. Yep, that's, that's correct. <laughs> so it really was important that goes all the way back. Absolutely. Otherwise, he's leaving out 500, 600 years. That's right. Because to the Judaizer, I'm using that term that some remember what that means. These are people who add to the faith in Jesus, keeping of the law stuff, or full of justification, full of sanctification. If Paul can show that Abraham was justified by faith and had nothing to do with the law, He's put a very compelling case together. They cannot ignore that. And the people in the Galatian cities to whom he's writing these letters, this letter, they have to sit back and say, you know, these Judaizers, that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty big gaping hole in their argument. Because the law is so central to justification and sanctification. How about Abraham? He's justified. He's declared righteous by God 550 or so odd years before Moses shows up and gets the law from God at Mount Sinai. It's pretty compelling. And so the, 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 the corollary to this then, and in a way that's what Fred's question is about Noah, the corollary to this is God always has justified by faith. Always. There are two paths to salvation. There's always God justifies by faith. Believe God, he declares the righteous. So, now Paul, after I answer Bill's question, 
Did they know the purpose of the law was to show how sinful they were and not to save them? When they're having this discussion. Certainly the Greco-Roman people, I doubt it. The Judaizers should, because most of those are Jews. Yes. But you, you, he and I had this plan. This is exactly what Paul's going to do now. He's now going to shift in verse 10 to talking about the law. He's brought Abraham to the witness stand. Now he has to deal with the law. And he has to deal with the purpose of the law. Why did God give the law in the first place? If the law wasn't to justify, why did he give it? I mean, what was the whole purpose of the law if it wasn't to justify us? And so that's what he's going to do here. And this is where the argument that he's going to lay out, it gets a little dicey. You have to really follow step by step what he's doing. Okay? Did, did you have a question before I start to do that? 25 words or less. <laughs> How does God through the Old Testament uh, 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 honor the verse where Jesus says no one comes to the Father but man in the Old Testament. So we've agreed that the many luminaries of the Old Testament here are saved. But where was Christ? And the only one I can think of that knew of Christ would be Isaiah. Well, probably some of the other prophets had the clarity of the understanding of Messiah, not the person of Jesus, per se, uh, because uh, the incarnation hadn't occurred yet. Um, the way you're asking the question needs to be refined a little bit in, in, in this sense. Um, When humanity joins the rebellion against God and joins Satan's rebellion, Genesis 3 and all that stuff, now sin has entered the world. And for God to be able to atone for sin, and that, that's a very important Old Testament word, atone, the original meaning to cover sin, there has to be a blood sacrifice. That is very clear, it would seem, in what God did with Adam and Eve. They had covered them because they were in shame now and experiencing the guilt and naked. Remember that? And they, they put fig leaves over their, their body. God does not do that. God kills an animal and puts animal skin over it. And the, the inference that we draw from that is there had to be a blood sacrifice to atone for their sin so that God could continue to have a relationship with them, albeit now they are sinners and he's a holy God. And so, Rob, that blood sacrifice, it becomes very crucial because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And so that blood sacrifice is how God deals with the problem of sin for the human race. Now, what the book of Hebrews does is says, okay, in the Old Testament economy of things, the blood sacrifice temporarily atoned for sin. That's why you have to keep doing it over and over and over again. Yom Kippur, the, the holiest day, is an annual sacrifice, plus the, the daily burnt offerings and peace offerings and all that stuff. But Jesus was a once-for-all blood sacrifice, key phrase in the book of Hebrews. 
So that means that once for all sacrifice means that now you don't go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at a building called the temple on the altar. You come to the cross and put your faith in Jesus. So now there's only one way to the Father. So, I mean, it's understanding that sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, is how God atoned for sin. It's how God atoned for sin once for all. We don't do sacrifices anymore. I believe that's why God, in the language we would use, I believe, permitted the temple to be destroyed in August of AD 70 so that the entire center of Judaism would be gone. There's no more blood sacrifice. And that's the problem for the Jew today. The Jew says, what, what does it mean to be a Jew today? Because there's no temple, there's no high priest, there's no sacrificial system. What does it mean to be a Jew today? And God keeps saying that. That's because that's done. My son has come. But they, many are responding in faith. But that's the challenge of modern Judaism. It's been that way since, since Jesus died. So I'm, I'm, I'm answering that's a long answer to your question. But does that make sense? A, it does. And B, what you added is so important. Never thought about the destruction of the temple. Temple being God's message to the Jews. Oh, it's over, right? We, did, we got it now. So. Yeah, so I think that's one of, again, you know, the language we use of uh, permitting it. But that destruction of the temple, uh, which Jesus told said to them, it's going to happen. Thank on it was a very, very important sign that the old economy of things was done. And that it's been an enormous identity crisis for Jewish people in 2,000 years. What does it mean to be a Jew now? Everything that defined who we were is gone. And it's not coming back until the end. Anyway. Okay. Is everybody with me? Now, as Bill brought up his question, let's, let's move into his lengthy discussion, which is going to continue into Chapter 4, his lengthy discussion about the law. So he starts... It's really interesting how he does this. He starts with an aspect about the law, which is the aspect of a curse. For all who rely on works of the law, for what? For salvation, are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul just quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. And so this is kind of an in-your-face aspect of the law as he transitions from how is Abraham justified to now what's the point and purpose and meaning of the law? And so he doesn't explain it. He first of all says something which would have been, as I said a moment ago, very in-your-face. Wait a minute. But you see... If these Judaizers really mean what they are teaching, then they've got to incorporate a verse like Deuteronomy 27, 26 into their theology. Because if you don't keep the law in its totality, you're under curse. Mm. And then he says... Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous shall live by faith. 
So Paul quoted Deuteronomy 27, 26 to establish a curse. And then he says, however, even in the law, even in the Old Testament, nobody said you're justified by the law. As a matter of fact, what the Old Testament says is you're justified by faith. What did he just quote from? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. You know, Habakkuk, where you had your devotions this morning, that little minor prophet, that's supposed to be a joke. <laughs> Habakkuk is not a typical minor prophet that most of us read. It's seemingly obscure. So he goes from Deuteronomy to Habakkuk, one of the important prophets. Habakkuk prophesied, he was a contemporary of Jeremiah, at the same time that Nebuchadnezzar is coming, going to destroy the, the, the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, the righteous, the just, live by faith. So even in the law, it doesn't say the righteous live by keeping law. It doesn't say that. Live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. There he just quoted from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. He's dumping a lot of Old Testament quotes into this little paragraph. You see, what he's saying to show that the law is not based on faith. You put your faith, this is really, really, really important. You put your faith in Yahweh Elohim, then the law explains how you're supposed to live. That's what it says. One does so live by that. You see, this is what so many people miss when people say, well, there were two ways of salvation in the Bible. There's keeping the law in the Old Testament. There's by grace through faith in the New Testament. It's wrong, wrong. That's the wrong way to say it. It's heresy. Justification is by faith. Instead of Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, Habakkuk says it in Habakkuk 2, 4, a major principle. Well, then, what's the, the law? Is how you live. The law is how you walk with God. The law defined, you are God's covenant people. You are separated out from among that pagan animistic world of polytheists. And you are to live in covenant relationship with me. And everything you do, I want you to think of me. I'm not a 24, I'm a 24-7 God. I'm not a fair weather friend. So you make your food. There's kosher food regulations. Every time you make your food, you're to think about me. No matter how innocuous and simple your meal, you are to make it according to the kosher food law. The, the law is very, very clear on how you make your clothing. The law is very, very clear on how you clean your house. Because you're supposed to, during the, the cycle of all the feast days, you're supposed to clean all the leaven out of your house. It's an annual spring cleaning. To get all, I mean, see, because everything you do, you're to think about God. Everything. See, that's not how the ancient world, that's not how they were. Like the people of God, the covenant people, that's how supposed to live. He quotes from Leviticus 18.5. You live, the law tells you how to live, but you come into a relationship with God by faith. And then verse 13. Oh, my. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
And that little word redeem is ex agorazo in Greek. I know that doesn't mean anything to you. That's a powerful word. There are three words for redeem in the New Testament. This is one of them. That God redeemed, Jesus Christ redeems us, purchases us, buys us, pays the price for us. What, what did he do? He became a curse for us. Because, and again, he quotes from, from, from Deuteronomy here, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He's quoting there from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. So let's follow his logic here. If you are going to say that salvation comes by keeping the law, you put yourself under a curse. Deuteronomy 27 says if you don't keep the law, you're under a curse. Curse is everyone who does not keep the law. But Paul says that is not the gospel. Even in the period of the Old Covenant, in, you had someone like Habakkuk say the just live by faith. So even in the Old Testament economy, it was Abraham who lived it and manifested it. You have the prophets teaching it. You're justified by faith. But you know that curse issue is still relevant because Jesus, in fulfilling the law, became a curse for us. Because the Bible says in Deuteronomy 24, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And Jesus died on the tree. So because he did that, becoming a curse for us, he redeemed us from the curse of the law. What, what, powerful, what powerful language that would be to these Greco-Roman people in these Galatian cities who are hearing these Judaizers teaching about the importance of the law and Paul laying all this out. Well, what you guys are saying doesn't match at all what the Old Testament is saying. As I read here what Paul is, he quotes from these four Old Testament passages. The law was not about justification. The law is about how you live. It's about how you walk with God. Oh, okay. And as a matter of fact, when God sent his son Jesus, he redeemed it. He ex agorazo us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us. See, he paid the price for us. So he now connects his two thoughts in verse 14, so that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So he's now connecting everything he said. He asked them in the beginning of chapter 3 about how would you get the spirit. In, in the second paragraph, he brings up Abraham's oldest son. Now he's introduced about the law, curse, and he says, listen, because Jesus paid the curse for us, the blessing of Abraham will come to the Gentiles so that we can receive the Spirit through faith, not the works of the law, through faith. Wow. The brilliance of Paul, but also, as you no doubt have thought about this too, all of his preparation, all of his study, in Greco-Roman thinking, as well as under Gamaliel I, the great rabbi of the first century, all of that's coming together. And the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing this brilliant defense of justification by faith and giving us, those of us who live on this side of the cross, giving us the right perspective about how we think about the law. 
giving us the right perspective about how we think about the Old Testament saying, how the Old Testament saying was saved, how the Old Testament saying, what was the purpose? Why was the law given? Why such intricate detail? Because to walk with God is a 24-7 enterprise in everything you do. You're to do to God's glory and think about it. This is a good place to ask, are you with me? Did I lose you? No loss. All right. Okay, the guys online are with me. I think the guys in the room are with me. Although there's a lot of silence here, but I'm assuming you are. We're here to You feel You feel free what? From a 24-7 sentence. I don't think about God every second of every day. I think of me. You raunchy sinner, you. I understand. I don't either. I don't either. But yet, at the same time, as you walk with the Lord, that thankful, gracious spirit, you find yourself thanking the Lord for much of what happened. Right. And periodically. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. yeah. But it's just, it isn't that you, every single second you're thinking about God. That's the ancient Israelite didn't do that either. But God constructed the law so that every activity of your life, you're involving in it. And that's what's important. And, and that, that's, that's, the, that's the relevance of, of what Paul's arguing here. They live by the law. Not saved by the law. You live by the law. As he quoted from Leviticus 18. So you, you put all this together. He's, he's, be, he's beginning to construct the ludicrous claims of the Judaizers. As they're trying to say, now look, you want to complete salvation? You got to circumcise your boys. You got to keep the Sabbath. You got to observe the feast law. All that stuff. And Paul is saying, as he said at the very beginning of Galatians, that is another gospel. Heteron. That's another gospel. It's not the gospel I preach. It's not the gospel that Jesus preached. All right. I'm assuming you're with me. Let's go to the next. Uh, we got about. Uh, 13, 14 minutes. Let's go to the next section where it gets a little bit more difficult, but yet it isn't. What Paul wants to do here, so let me introduce this, and I think we'll get this done, but let me introduce this. He has to now answer this question. What's the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the law. And he uses, he uses, the language he uses is the promise. The promises God made to Abraham. Now, starts in verse 15. Now, to give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, um, I, I don't think that's it. You, you understand what he's saying? You know, to, for you and me, uh, a man-made covenant would be, well, it could be the covenant of marriage. It could be a business agreement where you draw up a contract and the lawyers get involved, and the language is really important. It could be a contractual agreement to build a house. 
I mean, anything where you have two parties reaching an agreement on this is what's going to happen. Once it's it's ratified, you don't keep changing it. Right? I mean, that's not difficult to understand, is it? Any, think of any man-made agreement, any man-made covenant, marriage covenant, business arrangement, contract. Once it's ratified, it's out. Everybody signs it. You don't keep changing it. If you're going to change, you go to that. It's very elaborate. I mean, to do it right. So that's pretty simple. Okay, got it, Paul. Now, verse sixteen. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. Abraham, I'm making promises to you and your seed, your offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. Or some of your translations might have seeds. Referring to many. That's referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, verse 17. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. All right, now. I'm going to draw something on the board here. And those, you guys are online. You're going to, I don't know if you can see the board as well as these guys with their, their great eyesight can see it here. They're going to pick it up. Huh? We can see it pretty good. Okay. Pretty good. I'm going to draw a, a timeline on the board. Okay. And here is the language he uses is promise. And these are the promises God made to Abraham. We'll call this the way it's described in the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant, okay? Given approximately, I'm rounding it off, but approximately 2100 B.C. All right, now, what? when you go back and study that, and you go back and study the language of that covenant, it's an unconditional promise. And it is a unilateral promise. In other words, God makes it. It's not contingent upon anything. It's not contingent. It's God says, I will give your seed, give you seed, you know, blessing of numerous stars in the sky. I'm going to give your descendants your seed land, and I'm going to make them a blessing to the whole world. And by the way, it's conditioned, by the way, Abraham's condition on you obeying everything. You've got to keep the law. That's not what he said. It's unilateral, it's unconditional. And this promise, I hope you follow it, this promise ultimately leads to the singular Christ. Because he is the seed, he is the ultimate seed of Abraham. And that, of course, is that which we saw earlier in chapter 3. That's the blessing of God. In you, all the nations of the earth, that blessing is Jesus. Now, Paul's asking this question. This promise that God, this set of promises God made to Abraham, unconditional, unilateral, pointing to Jesus. What's the relationship of the law to this? 
The law is added to the promise in 1446 BC. This is the law. Did the law alter the promise? Did the law change the promise? Did it modify the promise? Did it change the details of the promise? Now, I asked that five, four or five different ways, and every one of you agrees. The answer to this question is no, it didn't change anything. That's what Paul said. You have to understand something. This is what Paul said. You have to understand something. When God made those promises to Abraham, those unconditionally unilateral promises, I'll round it off in 2100 BC, God knew that ultimately all of that blessing, the offspring, the seeds, referring to Jesus, because Jesus is the content of the blessing that God promised. In you, all the nations will be blessed. How? Through Jesus, who will come 2100 years later. But when the law was added, because this is the language he's going to use, the law was added to the promise. Did, did the law change the promise? No. Did it modify it? Is it added to it so now, in addition to believing in God, now you've got to keep the law of the promises and coming? Paul is saying, no, that's not the relationship. You with me? It's a short, it's, it's short, it isn't very long. But he says, when the law was added 430 years later, it didn't annul the covenant previously ratified by God as to make the promise of it. The law didn't make the Abrahamic covenant void. As a matter of fact, there are two different sets of arrangements. They are not the same thing. They're two different sets of arrangements, two different purposes that God has for them. So what he's brilliantly doing now is he's wanting to establish the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the law, but also to show the difference between the Abrahamic covenant and the law. They are not the same thing. They have totally different purposes. I told you this gets dicey and heavy. Are you with me? Okay, you guys online, I don't know if you saw the chart, but are you with me too? All right, nobody's, nobody's still there. <laughs> okay, as long as everybody's with me. Because I'm trying to think of what I should try to do in five minutes. If you're with me on this chart, the third paragraph, in this section about the law. Why then the law? That's the question he asked in verse 19, which is a little bit what Bill had asked earlier. So he thought this is an appropriate time to bring this up. Why then the law? Why did God add the law here? Why 550 some years or whatever it is approximately? Why did God add the law? In the relationship with the Jewish people, established under Abraham, he's the father of the Jewish people, he's the first Hebrew, all that stuff we don't know in the Old Testament. 550 years later, on Mount Sinai, God gives through Moses the law to the people. Why did he do that? Notice his language. It was added. Now, that's what I wrote up here. 
the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the law is the law was added. For the Jewish people, their relationship to God was defined by the Abrahamic covenant. That defined their relationship to the Lord. That's why in my book I called the title of the book is The Covenant People of God. They are his covenant people. And that's the Abrahamic covenant establishes. But the law was added for a purpose. What does he say? Because of transgressions. It's a very, very important word. In the Old Testament, actually in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the term transgression is one of the, the many terms used to talk about sin. The term that's translated transgression is is that it has this sense. There's the goal. There's the target. Transgression is you miss it. The target is holiness. Transgression is you miss it. Now listen, because I don't have as much time as if it were 11 o'clock, I want to talk a little bit about this. This is quite critical to understanding his argument. What the law does is it points out in detail the sinfulness of sin. That sounds a little redundant. Don't let it sound redundant. Sinfulness of sin, it points out the thoroughgoing depths of human sin. Because the introduction to the law what we call the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, is the moral character of God revealed. The first four deal with your relationship with God. No other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain, etc. The remaining six deal with your relationship with other people. Honor your father and mother. Keep the Sabbath. Do not steal. Do not lie, etc. The moral character of God revealed. And then, as the book of Deuteronomy is really a commentary and exposition of each one of the Ten Commandments, and you dig into the depths of how far the human race is from the moral character of God. It was added but he tells us something. Look, look at that word in the middle of verse 19 that follows the word transgressions. Until. should put it up there. Until. Now look at those two words. Because I'm going to do this and now I've got to quit. Paul's telling us something here. That the law, unlike the Abrahamic covenant, which was unconditional, unilateral, eternal, the law has a beginning to it and has an ending to it. It's added to the promise until the offspring comes. Who's the offspring? Jesus. So the law begins in 1446 B.C. and ends in A.D. 33 when Jesus dies on the cross. This is really important because for the Judaizer, 
who they are saying you want a more complete justification, more complete sanctification, you got to keep the law, you got to circumcise your boys, you got to keep the Sabbath, etc., etc., etc. What is Paul just saying? The law has a definitive beginning, the law has a definitive ending. And when Jesus shows up and dies on the cross, the law's function and purpose is over. And that's where the language in the Gospels is. Jesus, I'm sorry, guys, I'm standing when they can see me, but you can't. When, when, when he says it this way, Jesus shows up, he fulfills, the Gospels use that verb, he fulfills the law. So the law's function and the law's purpose has a beginning and has an end. And when Jesus completes his work, it's done. And the new covenant begins. This is so, men, if you, I, this is one of the things that I have committed myself to doing. I'm going to tell you, I want to, I want to, I want to teach this as much as I can to people because most Christians don't understand this. They do not understand what I'm just saying. They don't understand raising the old covenant, new covenant. They don't understand the power of the new covenant. <laughs> you and I have a covenant relationship with God, which is an unconditional unilateral covenant. It's called the new covenant. And you enter that new covenant relationship by putting faith in Jesus. And that defines your relationship with God. And now you have the Holy Spirit as the sign. Of the, I'm saying what Paul's going to be getting into. But what he's doing, and we'll pick up with verse 19 next week, is he's helping us to really understand the law. And the first thing he does, there's a lot more he does here in this paragraph, but the first thing he does is he shows the beginning and the end of the law. Has a very specific beginning point, has a very specific ending point. That would be important for the Judaizers because the people are listening to you. Well, then you guys don't have any right to teach us about the law. The law's irrelevant to us in terms of our salvation. That's exactly right. That's the death knell to the Judaizers' position, what Paul's doing right here. It's the death knell to their argument. They have absolutely nothing to stand on if he can prove what he's arguing. Now, are you guys with me? You sure? Yeah. Bill. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The once for all blood sacrifice of Jesus, the old covenant is over. It is done. It's sealed the new covenant. And we're in the new covenant. So it's so exciting. It makes to me it makes the scriptures really come alive. You're, oh my goodness, I really understand how all this stuff fits together. I wish I could give you a big thought paper to make sure you got it, but I can't do that. So I, I yeah, quickly because I really, I've got to go. I I'm glad we're starting with verse 19. Good. It gives us a chance to review this next week, so I can't ask that question. Good. I like that word review. I like that word review. Yeah. What I'd like to add is review and test, but I, I, <laughs> I'm going to pray here because then I've got to get to my next thing. Father, thank you for the book of Galatians that we're privileged to study. Oh, I love this book because it is so clear in Paul's response to the claims of these Judaizers. It's so clear as Paul lays out for us, I think in pretty clear language, the difference between the law and uh, the new covenant, the difference between justification by faith and living by the law, which is what he said earlier. Thank you for Jesus. Oh, my goodness. He fulfilled all this. He completed all this. We don't need to go up to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices anymore. Your once-for-all blood sacrifice is what purchased us out of the marketplace of sin, freed us 
so that we can live for you. We are so grateful for the Lord Jesus. May we represent him well in all we say and do. We commit the, these guys to you both online and here in the room. Bless them richly. And may they represent you well in all their lives and what they do and what they say. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, men. Take care.